With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of the hosts of the podcast, my name is Kyle Dabro. What's going on, everybody? Kevin Valentin here, other half of the podcast. Bro, we survived, and we took a little vacation, but we're back. Yeah, it's just, bro, the last couple of days, allergies have been tricky. I remember when we were thinking about recording on Sunday night, there was just no way. I think you were going through your allergies. I was going through mine. And then really just kind of every other day or so, it's just been touch and go this entire time. And I mean, guys, we've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks. This is nothing new, but I think it'd probably be better if we took a couple of days off so we don't look like hell when we're recording, because I imagine that's not a pretty sight to see for you. And honestly, when Kevin and I probably watch this back, it's probably not going to be a pretty sight for us to watch either. So, but no, as of right now, we're good. Um, the last couple of weeks, it's been touch and go. The same thing could happen in this one. So just because we're good right now doesn't mean that that'll maintain throughout the rest of the episode. So we'll try to be a little bit more efficient uh, when it comes to the topics. We have a couple of topics to get to. Uh, we'll cover about three sports in general for today's episode. Kev, if you allow me, I'll go over the agenda as we have it. Take the floor, bro. All right. So first things first, uh, we're going to cover some topics within the NBA. Uh, the first two topics will be in regards to Paul George and Joel Embiid. With Paul George, uh, he suffered a sprained knee against the Oklahoma City Thunder. It was a pretty, I would say, a tricky uh, video to watch, watching his knee hyperextend backwards uh, late in that game against the Thunder. Uh, as of right now, he avoided a significant injury to his knee. I believe Woj said that he's only going to miss the next two to three weeks. It would mean that he would miss the rest of the regular season, but more than likely they would reassess him at the end of the regular season, and then more than likely he'd be ready to go sometime in that first-round matchup, whoever they go up against. Because more than likely the Clippers are going to the playoffs. It just depends on what the seed's going to be for them. After that, we'll kick it to Joel Embiid, who is just having, once again, a phenomenal season. When it comes to the MVP discussion, his name is right alongside Nikola Jokic and also Giannis uh, as another name in the ring, or in the discussion, I should say. But when it comes to Embiid, Embiid's been on an absolute tear the last, I would say, 10 games. Kev, we were going over some of his stats. The last 10 games, he scored over 30 points. He's been absolutely dominant, not only offensively, but just as a defensive presence. He just continues to be one of the biggest pieces that we've seen in recent memory. And when it comes to him, he's definitely making a significant push to claim his first MVP 
as an NBA basketball player. So we'll talk about him a little bit. After that, we'll kick it over to the UFC. We'll talk about UFC 286. More specifically, we'll focus on the Kamaru Usman, Leon Edwards trilogy fight that took place this past weekend. Uh, Leon Edwards did get a decision over Kamaru Usman, so he retained his welterweight belt in that division. Uh, we'll just talk about the fight generally, and we'll talk about where both fighters go from here. And then after that, we'll kick it to the NFL to wrap up the episode. Uh, very similar to what we've done for the last couple of weeks. I will focus on some off-season fixes for two teams in particular. Granted, free agency has been going on the last week, week and a half. So we'll talk about some of the signings that these two teams have made and some areas that they still need to address. The two teams that we'll go over will be the Atlanta Falcons and the Tennessee Titans. So that's pretty much what we have on the slate for you guys. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Hopefully uh, the allergies don't become a focal part of the episode. So we'll do the best that we can uh, to get through this as quickly as possible. So Kevin and I are dying whenever the allergies roll in. And like I said, it's just it's not a pretty sight to see. But uh, with that said, we are going to go over the Paul George injury. If you guys had seen the video on Twitter or had you watched the game, uh, it was a pretty tricky sight to see. Uh, Paul George was coming back down. I think he was attempting to get a rebound. And when he landed, his knee hyperextended backwards and he immediately went to the ground. Uh, he was carried off the court and just initial feeling or initial look at the injury. I thought it was a hyperextension, but there were reports that surfaced this morning. We're recording on Wednesday. Um, there were some reports that were tending or trending in the direction that Paul George sustained a pretty significant injury. But Woj came out uh, sometime Wednesday afternoon and said that he's going to miss the next two to three weeks with a sprained ankle. Unfortunately, that means he'll be out for the rest of the regular season, but good for him and the Clippers knowing that he avoided a major injury to his knee, but it's going to put a focus on the Clippers to make some adjustments over the next couple of weeks with Paul George's absence. So Kevin, to kick this one to you, how do you think the Clippers are going to adjust with about nine to 10 games left in the regular season with Paul George out potentially for the rest of the regular season with a knee sprain? I think the Clippers are going to have to make some severe adjustments. Obviously, we know that he is second fiddle to Kawhi's number one. We know what he can bring to the court when he is healthy. We're talking like 24 points per game. If I'm looking at these numbers correctly for the season, he's at 23.8. So again, 24 points per game, 45% from the field, 37 from three, six boards, five assists. Again, someone that is, con someone that is consistently contributing on both sides of the floor as well. Um, so that those are pretty big shoes to fill. Now, thankfully, they did pick up some pieces at the trade deadline as well as in the buyout market, which happened to be Russell Westbrook as well as Eric Gordon. These are some pieces that are going to need to get increased minutes. These are going to be some players that are going to need to step up and, and play very, very well towards the end of the stretch because every other team they play against for the remainder of the regular season outside of Portland is either a playoff team or a team chasing a play-in berth. So... Every team that they're playing against has a reason to play hard, is trying to get a playoff berth, and or is trying to push to at least fight for a play-in tournament contention spot. So this is not going to be an easy walkthrough. They aren't playing the Spurs or the Rockets or anybody like that. Just to let you guys know in terms of what it is they have to go up against, over the next few weeks, they have the Thunder tomorrow, the Pelicans, then the Bulls, the Grizzlies on back-to-back -back nights in Memphis, 
Then you have the Pelicans again. They play the Lakers. They play the Blazers, which is, again, the only team as of right now that is outside of the playoffs looking in. And then the Suns. So when it comes to the remainder of the season, when it comes to players needing to step up, I'm looking again at Russell Westbrook and Eric Gordon. Russell's going to have to find a way to lead this team with the ball in his hands, limit turnovers, and play effective minutes. And then Eric Gordon is going to have to be the sniper that they got him and acquired him to be and hit some timely outside shots and be efficient as well. So when you talk about those two players combined with Terrence Mann, who's already been uh, experienced the last couple of seasons, who has done very well in, uh, in minutes that he's been provided over the last couple of seasons, Kawhi Leonard looks to be getting back into form just at the right, just about at the right time. We know what the Clippers can do when healthy. We know how they play uh, closer towards the playoffs as well as in the playoffs. This is just a matter of holding on and maintaining the seed that they're at now, if not making an attempt to push for a higher seed. Because as it stands, they're fifth. But if they decide to slip with as close as this Western Conference can be, we're talking about the Clippers potentially falling into a play-in tournament situation. So something to be mindful of until Paul George gets back. But this is, again, not going to be any easy feat whatsoever. Kev, I'm with you 100%. I think when it comes to Paul George, I think if there's a silver lining to this story is that he avoided a major injury. Because when you watch the video, when you watch the the replay when he came down awkwardly, uh, when he hyperextended his knee, you just automatically assume worst case scenario and you're thinking it's like, did he tear a ligament? Could he be out for not only the rest of the regular season, but potentially for the rest of the playoffs? And when Woj came out with that tweet Wednesday afternoon saying that he's only going to be out two to three weeks, I imagine for Clippers fans, the team itself and the organization, they probably took a collective sigh of relief knowing that granted, he's probably going to miss the rest of the regular season, but more than likely they'll reassess him at the end of the year. And then hopefully he'll be ready to go at some point in that first round matchup, depending on who they play against. But Kev has essentially hit it perfectly. As far as I see it, this puts all the pressure on the depth of the Clippers and the Clippers, as far as I see it, they're a pretty solid team in the Western Conference. Are they top tier like the Nuggets, the Kings, or the Grizzlies? No, but they have the potential to get into that upper echelon of the Western Conference. Obviously, having Paul George goes a long way to helping out their status in that quest, I would say. But when it comes to the next, I would say, two weeks that they have for the rest of the regular season, it's going to put some pressure on guys like Russell Westbrook, Eric Gordon, Terrence Mann, Nicholas Batum. These guys are going to have to step up in Paul George's absence and make some critical shots. And not only just on the offensive side, they're going to have to step up defensively because I imagine teams that are going to go up against the Clippers are going to try to expose uh, the lack of size that Paul George typically brings with him not being on the court for the foreseeable future. So, you know, there's one element where we could look at the Clippers when they have Paul George on the court, they're definitely one of the better teams in the Western conference, but without that, without him, uh, they could take, a step back, how far they could take a step back. That's to be determined. And when it comes to some of the role players that they have on their roster, it's going to be a big emphasis that these guys are going to have to make some timely decisions. And not only just on the offensive side, but on the defensive side, if they could be able to do that effectively going up against the teams that Kevin just alluded to, a lot of these teams that they're going up against have playoff aspirations and are looking more than just to, get into the first round and get knocked out of the playoffs. Some of these teams have a pretty good chance to make it to the second round and even further. Uh, it's going to put some pressure on the Clippers and hopefully they could be able to 
tread water until the the rest of the regular season, or until the end of the regular season, I should say. But overall, Kawhi's going to have to step up. It's just really everybody's going to have to step up here. And, um, you know, one man goes down, it's next man up. You know, typically we always talk about that in the NFL, but it's the same thing in the NBA. Guys who goes down with injuries all the time, and guys are going to have to step up. Sometimes it's going to have to take two, three players to be able to step up and fill the void of someone like Paul George going down with an injury. So, you know, I'm glad that Paul George is not dealing with a major injury that's going to sideline him for the rest of the regular season and the playoffs. And even further than that, you know, I think, you know, when it comes to that situation, you know, he definitely dodged a bullet. But for the rest of the regular season, they still have a lot of work to do. And like Kev said, if they slip up over these next couple weeks, their seeding in the Western Conference could be significantly impacted. And they could have a disadvantage situation going into the playoffs if they fall too far down. And it could be even worst case scenario if they play in a playing tournament because if they don't have Paul George in that playing tournament situation, if they don't play A-plus basketball, they could be out of the playoffs when they were the fifth seed in the Western Conference, which would just be a disaster scenario for them. I don't really see that happening. I, I think that they still will make the playoffs. I, the playing tournament, they're teetering with that, and it doesn't really take much to get into the into a position like that, knowing where the Western Conference is right now. But it's going to be a team effort here. They're going to have to step up in Paul George's absence. And they're going to have to play some pretty good basketball, not only offensively, but defensively. But I'll just leave it at that. I mean, you know, the injury to itself, it, it scared me because I had seen a, a flashback a couple of weeks ago. I don't remember why or who retweeted it. Um, it was like gruesome injuries to NBA players. And the first one that comes up is like Kevin Ware and then like Paul George. And then this happens, and you see the way his knee buckles, and you're like, I don't recall if that's the same knee or leg that he had fractured in USA Basketball Camp. Again, just because I, I, I can't... Kind of hit the edge of the stanchion on the way down. That, yeah, that one. You were just like, is skin going to rip? Is this going to happen again? Could this be career-ending? Just because, again, when you're looking at it from a social media perspective of just scrolling and you see an injury, you're like, oh my God, that's PG. Like... Yeah. You hope and pray that you you don't want to you don't excuse me you don't wish injury upon anybody right but when you see someone that's already gone through something as gruesome as he has you definitely don't want him to have something like that again because I mean I'm no doctor but I would assume you break the same leg twice in a in a fashion like that I'm pretty sure that could potentially be career ending but again I'm no doctor I was just looking at it from a an overall fan perspective of please be okay and seeing Walter's report today was like super reassuring despite the Mavericks consistently losing to the Clippers. Um, this is definitely just a, a fan moment of just like, thank God he's okay. Yeah. And look, I mean, hyperextended knees, they're common in the NBA. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's one of those scenarios where it looks a lot worse than it actually could be. But still, it's just, you know, if you're watching the game, if you're watching the highlight on Twitter or, you know, throughout the game and you see that replay, your first instinct is like, ugh. That was that was kind of nasty. That, that that didn't look too good, and even the announcers. I was watching the the replay uh, from last night, and even the announcers were like, "Oh yeah, it's like that was a hyperextension, no doubt about it." But you know, when it comes to knees, everybody kind of assumes worst case scenario. It's like, oh, ligaments gone, ACL's gone, MCL's gone, just because you know those injuries are so frequent, and you hate to see it. But you know, when you see an injury like that, you just kind of jump to that conclusion. You know, fortunately for Paul George's case, uh, he'll be back sooner rather than later. But um, his presence is going to be missed within that Clippers team 
for the rest of the regular season. There's no doubt about that. So, I mean, obviously that means we got to move on and we have to talk about some brighter news in the NBA. And that's Joel Embiid and the tear that he has been on over the last couple of weeks, if not the last month or so. And his final push to knock Jokic off of his back-to-back, potentially three-peat of an MVP. So, Kyle, with Joel's success, the Sixers playing at an all-time record, or should I say, you know, like what seems to be an all-time high, being 8-2 and in their last 10, what are your thoughts on Joel Embiid potentially taking the reins away from uh, Nikola Jokic? I think that he has a very good chance to be able to surpass Nikola Jokic in the MVP race and claim his first career MVP trophy in the NBA. And when it comes to when it comes to Joel Embiid, it's really just been a back and forth contest between him and Jokic over the last couple of years. I mean, even though that Jokic has won back to back MVPs, Embiid was neck and neck with him pretty much that entire time. And throughout most of this year, we've mostly looked at Jokic as pretty much the favorite to win MVP. But Kev, we have to go over this recent stretch that Joel Embiid has been on because Kev. This is a phenomenal stretch that he's been on. Just to go over the last 10 games that he's played in, going over the point totals that he has, I'm just going to go in order based on the games that they played in. So the last game he played, he scored 37. Before that, 31. Then 38. 36. 34. 39. 39 again. 42. 31. And 35. And then on top of that, he's averaging almost 10 rebounds a game in that 10 game stretch. And when it comes to the 76ers as a team, they've won eight out of their last 10. That Chicago game was a little bit weird. That double OT game where offensively, really the Bulls and the 76ers couldn't really score. Mind you, usually when you see a double overtime game in the NBA, the score is going to be like 140 to 135, something like that. The score of that game was 109 to 105. So it was a relatively low scoring game. And unfortunately for the 76ers, they lost to the Bulls on that one. But when you look at the stretch that Joel Embiid's been on, he's been the primary catalyst for why the 76ers are one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference and the NBA to a larger extent. Right now within the East, they're the third team as far as the third seed. Uh, they're, I believe they're behind the Bucks by one game in the Eastern Conference. So there's still a little bit of time for the 76ers to try to improve their seeding to po- possibly get that two seed away from Milwaukee. It's going to be tricky because Giannis is having just as good as a season over in Milwaukee. And depending on how the last, I would say, eight to 10 games for each team goes, we'll kind of see how that scenario works out. But when it comes to Joel Embiid, Embiid to me, when I've seen him go up against Jokic one-on-one, Embiid won the matchup. Embiid simply just overpowered Jokic when they had that one-on-one battle when the 76ers and the Nuggets played earlier this season. And when you've looked at Embiid, Embiid, I think, is a little bit more well-rounded than Jokic when it comes to the overall game. I think the way that I see it is Jokic, to me, is a more complete offensive player simply just because of his ability to be able to assist. And essentially, Jokic is getting numbers similar that you would see with a point guard because Jokic could get seven to eight assists per game. Sometimes he could average a triple-double. And typically when the Nuggets get a get a win, it's, it's usually because Jokic is getting a triple-double. And there's a huge stat with Jokic getting triple-doubles. It usually means that the Nuggets are going to win. But when it comes to Embiid, just the stretch that he's been on the last couple of weeks, it's something to behold. He's number one in the NBA in points per game. 
And when you look at just the body of work that Embiid's been able to do consistently throughout this year, not only just this year, but the last couple of years, he's one of the best players in the NBA. And I don't believe that NBA fans give him the amount of shine that he's deserved compared to somebody like Jokic. I think a lot of people look at Jokic over the last couple of years and they hold him in high regard. And it's not to say that they do the same with Embiid. It's just there's a slight little difference between the two. But I think with the way that Embiid has been playing, especially over, I would say, the last two weeks, really probably ever since the All-Star break, he has definitely put himself in contention to potentially get an, an MVP trophy. It's just going to come down, I think, to this last stretch of the season. And whoever plays better, whether it's Jokic or Embiid, I think if Embiid plays better than Jokic, I think that there's a very good chance that Embiid can capture his first MVP. But if Jokic plays better than Embiid in this final stretch of the season, I think that Jokic would claim his third straight MVP. But Embiid is right there. And I will say just one final point. I think Embiid's his overall defensive capabilities compared to Jokic, I think slightly uh, put him in a better position over Jokic overall, just because defensively he's one of the best defenders in the NBA. And he is a better one-on-one defender than Jokic. I think you tie those factors in together. I think if Embiid plays the way he's been playing the last couple weeks and finishes out the regular season strong, I think he could definitely get an MVP trophy. That's just how I see it. I mean, Kyle obviously hit the nail on the head in pretty much every single point that you can for an MVP candidate. And I will echo pretty much everything. And I'm just going to go over some numbers for this season as a whole, right? So we know that Nikola Jokic is averaging damn near a triple-double. We know that the Nuggets are the number one seed in the Western Conference. We know that Nikola finally has a healthy set of teammates in Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray and a good supporting cast with a great head coach. But we're looking at Joel Embiid. Statistically, he's the NBA's leading scorer. He's averaging 11 rebounds a game. Excuse me, he's averaging... Well, sorry, I can't read today. Uh, He's averaging 10 rebounds a game this year. He's also averaging 11 free throw attempts. He's averaging 35% from the three-point line and 55% from the field. And like Kyle said, defensively, he's almost averaging two blocks a game as well as a steal a game. I understand where Kyle's coming from as a complete package in terms of he can give you 30 on the offensive end and then he can limit his opponent to under 15 to 20 points on the defensive side as well. It's just what he is able to do on the floor, his footwork, his athleticism, how he's able to to just look so elegant on the floor with making people miss, fading away, kind of like Dirk Nowitzki to an extent, but he's just so much heavier. You don't expect that from somebody his size. And I know that we talk about what Nikola can do for his size. And yes, he's a better passer overall. We all know that. But the dominance of what Joel Embiid is and how he represents the center position is I, I I will go out on a limb and say he's probably the most dominant force we've ever seen since arguably Dwight Howard and even before that Shaquille O'Neal because Dwight wasn't putting up 30-point-per-game seasons because he just wasn't offensive, offensively well-rounded outside of the occasional alley-oop. And his post moves were always eh at best. He was never somebody that was going to go out there, hit you on the block, hook, someone that's going to go out there, shimmy down, fade away, you know, the complete offensive game that is Joel Embiid, yes, he can put his back to you and put it on you and dunk on you, but he can also hit shots from all over the floor. So, yes, he is very flexible in how he can attack you, but at the same time, when it comes to protecting the rim and altering shots, 
I think that Joel Embiid is probably the best player in the NBA in those categories. But how he's been treating this season, how he's been going at it, and like Kyle said, when you talk about the overall matchups between the two candidates, Joel shows out every single time. It's not even a joke, and it's, it's not close. And for what he's been doing the last few weeks, it needs to be noted because Philadelphia, like Kyle said, is also 8-2 in their last 10, third in the Eastern Conference, right behind, obviously, Boston and Milwaukee, who are the two best records in the NBA. And, I mean, James Harden's been in and out of the lineup a couple of times, Tyrese Maxey, and a number of other players. Joel's been doing everything he can to keep this team afloat. And I think that 100%, based on how the season has gone, where he is statistically, if there was going to be a debate on MVP and who to win, now is the best time to put Joel's name in the hat, in the ring, and say, listen, I, I know we're so focused here on, on Jokic, but let's not be overshadowed. Let that not overshadow what Embiid has been doing. Not just this season. He was the NBA's, all. I think the NBA's leading scorer last season as well, correct me if I'm wrong. And what he's been able to do has just been nothing short of incredible. So this is definitely going to be a good race, and it's going to come down to the wire. If you want me to, I could look up the uh, the numbers that he had from last year when it comes to his. I, I'm pretty points. sure he won the scoring title, and everybody was upset that he won the scoring title and not the MVP. If I'm not mistaken, I am looking it up right now. Just give me one second. So yeah, last year he was the NBA scoring. He was the scoring champion last year. I want to see how much he averaged last year. I'm just gonna pull up his. Stats I think it was thirty, if not thirty something. Yep, thirty and a half. So he's having an even better offensive season this year, which says something. So again, you know, for for just the the sec, just to end it on a good note, Joel Embiid is playing at an All NBA level, and he needs to be acknowledged as arguably the best player in the NBA. And this award would solidify that. I think just one little point that I'm going to add before we move on to the next segment is, Kev, the one thing that stands out to me about Embiid, Kev, he's been healthy the entire year. You compare that to the first couple seasons when he was in the NBA, probably his first season, his rookie year, he was dealing with injuries. But this year, Kev, he's played the overwhelming majority of the games that the 76ers have been on the court. As of right now, he's played 68 games. I don't know how many games in particular they have left, but there's a very good chance that Joel is going to play over 75 games this year, which would be a career high. He's already set a career high in the amount of games that he's played this year. And, you know, the biggest thing, it's really a testament to him, is that he's been largely healthy. And when he's been healthy, look at the numbers that he's able to produce. Availability is the best ability. And like you said, career high in, in points, he's going to average probably somewhere around 32, 33 points a game this season, which would be another career high. Kev, he's just, he's just basically in that category of one of the most dominant players in the NBA, and he's proving it time and time again whenever the 76ers hit the court. Without a doubt. So, I mean, you know, we're going to pivot. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we're going to move on to the next title, the next segment, and that is going to be UFC 286 that took place this past weekend. Again, since we didn't get to record on Sunday due to allergies, we were uh, 
just down for the count outright bad. Um, you know, no Kyle and I didn't get to, it was listen, to put it bluntly, I took a nap from three to six on Sunday, which is basically a miniature slumber. I woke up because my sinuses were fried. I couldn't breathe. I went through a whole box of tissues that night. I couldn't breathe from six PM to nine AM the next morning because I just my nose was just flustered. Even if we would have attempted to record, I a hundred percent sounded like this, like all day. I couldn't breathe. <laughs> and I was constantly like spitting phlegm up. Guys, it was disgusting. So Sunday was a negative. And then Kyle was okay. And I was then doing he texted me. Then he goes, It just punched me in the face. I can't even turn I can't even turn the light on. I'm going to bed. <laughs> it's bad. Sunday night was bad, but so Monday Monday was a little bit better, but yeah. I mean, hey, listen, at the end of the day, man, you know, excuse me for being, once again, just a horrible partner. Happy belated birthday to my partner. I didn't forget this year. I just didn't say it at the beginning of the episode. No, so I, I put it on my damn calendar. I appreciate that. I'm, I feel good. You know, 28 feeling great, bro. Every year, guys, every year since I've met Kyle, I would either say it too early or I'd say it the day after. And in last case, in last year's case, I said it at the end of the night, and I was like, oh, I forgot. <laughs> so, again, uh, like I said, shout out to my partner. Happy birthday, or belated, should I say. I appreciate and, that. And uh, I know we got to get into this 286. So, Kyle, I mean, based on what you saw from, obviously, Leon Edwards and Kamaru Usman, what are your final takes and your thoughts on how the, uh, how the event went? Well, it was a good fight. And when I look... Back at this fight in particular, uh, the one thing that stood out for me was Leon's kickboxing. And you know, obviously that had a major factor in the second fight that both Leon and Kamaru had, simply just because you know Leon landed that head kick against Kamaru in the fifth round when a, a minute to go, got the knockout, and then ended up getting the welterweight belt. And it was interesting because in this fight, in the fifth round, Leon tried it again against Kamaru. It's just Kamaru defended it better this time. But in, in this particular fight, this was really kind of a, a back-and-forth affair. And I will say, just to kind of focus on Leon, you know, Leon got out to a pretty good start similar uh, to the second fight. You know, in that first round, you know, I thought Leon did a, a pretty good job establishing pace. And then kind of like in those, those second and third round areas, it was really kind of a back-and-forth affair. I would say the second round was really kind of a split between both fighters. Uh, the third round, uh, I thought Kamaru had the advantage simply just because I think Leon got called for a, a fence grab and uh, Herb Deem ha had to take a point away from him, which was justified. It was a pretty bad fence grab. But then, you know, going into the championship rounds, going into the fourth and fifth rounds, I thought Leon was just able to do enough against Kamaru. And one of the things that I should also mention when it comes to Leon is his takedown defense against Kamaru was fantastic. I believe the stat from that fight in particular, Kamaru attempted a decent amount of takedowns, but Leon defended 80% of them. And going back into that second fight, you know, Leon was taken down a couple times by Kamaru. And that was kind of one of the fixtures of that fight until Leon hit the head kick. But in this fight, Man, Kamaru just could never get those takedowns. And even if he did, they were relatively short-lived. He didn't, he wasn't able to establish ground control that he had in that second fight. And going into, you know, the later rounds, you have to be able to get those takedowns. And unfortunately for Kamaru, he wasn't able to do that. But Leon, I gotta give huge props to him. His takedown defense was excellent. I thought his kickboxing was excellent. He was able to get a couple knees in there as well. 
and he was able to get a very close decision in the end for him to retain that welterweight belt. When it comes to both fighters from here on out, you know, Leon's going to be presented with some opportunities uh, to retain that welterweight belt. Who he goes up against, not really sure. I guess one of the names that's being thrown out there right now is Colby Covington. Uh, Colby was actually in London for that fight and had one of the guys not been able to go. Colby would have been able to step in and potentially fight in that type of scenario had one of those guys not, not been able to fight. But, you know, Leon, I don't know how long his timeline for recovery is going to be. I would imagine he's probably going to fight probably around July, August, probably the late summer is probably when we would expect to see Leon uh, return uh, to fight once again. Who he goes up against, we're not sure. I, one of the names right now that I'm hearing is Colby Covington. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that. And when it comes to Kamaru, look, I'm not going to go to this point where just because he's lost back-to-back fights that he's done and this is just nothing but a downhill slide for him from here on out. You know, when I look at this fight in particular, in the trilogy fight, you know, Kamaru definitely had opportunities to win this fight. This was not heavily one-sided by Leon. It's just Kamaru wasn't able to get the takedowns, wasn't able to get ground control, and Leon's kickboxing really won the day when it was all said and done, especially in those championship rounds. So I think when it comes to Kamaru, Kamaru's going to have to reassess. He's going to have to regroup. And, you know, one of the things with, with Kamaru that I think we're going to have to focus on is his age. And is he going to be able to keep up the pace that he was well known for when he was defending that welterweight belt? Because when you look at this fight in particular, Leon was the one establishing pace in this fight. Leon was walking down Kamaru. When the last couple of fights that we've seen between Leon and Kamaru, Kamaru was the one walking down Leon. And same thing in the fights that Kamaru was defending his belt. That was not the case in this fight. Now, is that age? Is that attrition? Have the hits finally gotten to Kamaru? Is his knee or or both of his knees getting to the point where it's a focal piece and why he's not winning these fights? You can make those points. I'm not going to say that he's going to go on some sort of Tyron Woodley slide after Tyron lost the welterweight belt to Kamaru. But, you know, Kamaru is getting older. He's in his mid-30s. Lost back-to-back fights. This one was close. I will give him that. But you know, Kamaru's going to have to really reassess some things because there's some tape against Kamaru now, especially with kickboxing. Kamaru does not do well against kicks. And if he's not able to get takedowns and establish ground control, that's going to be a tricky situation for Kamaru moving forward because, let's face it, he's not that good of a striker. I understand that he had... One of the most iconic knockouts against Jorge Masvidal a couple of years back. But outside of that, he hasn't really been known to be a submission artist. And he's not really a knockout artist. You know, those are some of the things that are going against Kamaru from here on out. But I still think that Kamaru still has some uh, some tread left in the tires. Uh, we'll see who he goes up against next. I'm not 100% sure he's, who he's going to fight next. I imagine he's going to take a couple of months off to... A recover and regroup, but you know, just to kind of round this UFC 286 between uh, Kamaro and Leon, got to give credit to Leon. I picked against him. I thought Kamaro would reclaim that belt and reestablish uh, his dominance in that welterweight division, but I got to give Leon credit. He stepped up to the plate 
and he made the most of it, and that's why he's retaining that belt. So congratulations to Leon, and we'll see where Kamara goes from here. Seemed like it was a good fight. Uh, again, I didn't see it. I, I'm always honest. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I'm going to analyze something. I have no idea what is going on. So I will transition into our next topic, which we haven't talked about in a couple weeks, and that is three things that we believe some teams need to improve upon before next season begins. Free agency has started. The NFL draft is approaching in just a couple of weeks. So, I mean, we still have some teams we want to get into, and today we're going to talk about the Atlanta Falcons and the Tennessee Titans. So, Tile. Kyle, swing it here. Okay, just call me Tile now. No, 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 never. I'm just, I'm just gonna be what you see on the floor. I'm just gonna be floor nope, tiles. Nope, nope. <laughs> just playing. Uh, but right. no, like, like, like Kevin said, um, we'll talk about the Falcons first. Uh, when it comes to the Falcons, uh, they had a relatively subpar year last year, even despite being a subpar team in the NFL. Just because the NFC South was so bad, they actually had ample opportunities to be able to get a play-in spot, not a play-in spot, wow, a playoff spot, I'm thinking of the NBA here, get a playoff spot, despite having a sub-500 record. Unfortunately for them, they fell a little bit short, and Tampa ended up winning the division. Uh, there's going to be some key areas of focus for the Falcons. Like Kev said, we'll focus on three areas that concern us the most with the Falcons. So, Kev, to kick this one to you, what are some things that the Falcons need to focus on when it comes to areas of need? in free agency, and with the draft coming up pretty soon? I mean, the two I got two. Two of the biggest glaring issues are going to be pass rush. They were the second worst team in the NFL at sacking the quarterback. The Bears had 20. The Falcons had 21. I've said this multiple times. There are players that have either eclipsed or have hit 20 sacks individually. So for a team in a 17-game season to only acquire 20 is pretty abysmal. We all know that the old saying is defense wins championships, and when there's no pass rush, obviously that means that quarterback's got all day, and that means fewer mistakes are going to be made. So if you can't get to the quarterback, if you can't rush him, if you can't create sacks, turnovers, whatever the case may be, you're not going to win any games. And then second for me is going to be quarterback. I know that they drafted Desmond Ritter out of Cincinnati last year. I know that they acquired, uh, I think, the hometown hero in Taylor Heineke. I think he's from the Georgia area. Uh, in free agency, and we know that he has been a good backup slash filler slash bridge QB. I mean, like Taylor showed showed a lot of flashes in Washington that he could, you know, play very good football, and the team rallied around him very well, and the media loved him. He was a great locker room presence. But in terms of wanting to compete with Tom Brady out of the division, the Atlanta Falcons are going to need a quarterback of the future, and I don't necessarily know if. Ritter and Heineke are going to be either of those guys are going to be the quarterback of the future. I mean, I, obviously, I know Desmond Ritter has a lot more potential with him being just a rookie last year. And Taylor Heineke, again, has just been a journeyman backup. But I don't know if those two have the capable assets to put the Atlanta Falcons in a position to win. Last year, they did what they did with Marcus Mariota and his mobility. And they were third in the league in rushing, averaging over 160 yards per game. So... Now this offensive system now would have to change again because Ritter and Heineke are not mobile quarterbacks like Marcus Mariota is. So I'm just curious to see what is going to happen with them moving forward at the quarterback position. And Kev, for me, if I had to focus on one more area with the Falcons, it's pretty simple. It's going to be really the wide receiving core because let's face it, when it comes to the Falcons, Kev, they were one of the worst passing teams in the NFL this past year. Just 
the inconsistency at the quarterback spot, you didn't know what you were going to get from Marcus Mariota and Desmond Ritter. And, you know, when it comes to their overall depth at that wide receiver core, it was definitely a focal part in why that offense just didn't really do anything significant this past year. But, you know, when I look at some of their guys that they have in the fold right now, obviously one of the biggest receivers that they have is Drake London. Drake London had a pretty solid rookie campaign this past year. He had 72 receptions. He had about 850 yards receiving, had four touchdowns. And, you know, despite the fact that I would say the Falcons had a subpar wide receiving core, he was definitely a standout. And, you know, moving forward, I think they have a pretty good piece with Drake in that wide receiving core. But after that, Kev, it gets really, really thin. Uh, they just signed Matt Collins from the Raiders. When it comes to Matt Collins, he's definitely shown some flashes, but when he was playing over in Vegas, he was mostly around a third or fourth string wide receiver. Now, more than likely, I think the Falcons are going to make some sort of adjustment to this wide receiving core in the draft. As of right now, they have Matt Collins as the second string wide receiver or just the second option at the wide receiver, I should say. And that's pretty much it. So for me, when I look at the Falcons, the Falcons definitely need to upgrade this wide receiving core to be able to be just be more competitive uh, offensively. And depending on who the quarterback is, whether it's Desmond Ritter or Taylor Heineke, when I look at this depth chart right now, I just don't see a lot of options for these guys to be able to throw to. And I will say they do have some other options that they can throw to. Kyle Pitts, one of the best tight end prospects that we've seen in recent history. He's definitely shown some flashes early on, but it's just unfortunate that we haven't been able to see his full talents displayed that we originally anticipated just because the quarterback situation has been a tricky one in Atlanta for the last couple of years. And they did trade for Johnny Smith from the Patriots. So, you know, they can run some two tight end sets, but they definitely need to improve this wide receiving core. There's no doubt about that. And I will say, if they're able to tweak this wide receiving core, you tie this in with the fact that their run game was pretty solid last year. They were top five in the NFL in rushing offensively this past season. I think that they can make some decent moves within the NFC South to the point where they win the division. I'm not so sure. I would say that the team that they would have to beat right now is probably the Saints. I'm not really going to pick the Bucks in that situation because Tom Brady retired and they're bringing in Baker Mayfield to replace him. So I'm not really set on Tampa right now being the best team in the NFC South. But I think if the Falcons make some adjustments with this wide receiving core, if they maybe get some more consistency from the quarterback position, they could definitely be a competitive team in the NFC South. I'll just kind of leave it at that. I mean, you know, Julio Jones left. He wasn't healthy for a while. And then obviously you had to let go of Calvin Ridley and do what you needed to do. Whether that I forgot whether they traded him to Jacksonville or they let him go and Jacksonville signed him. I can't remember what the situation was, but with that whole betting thing, it just Atlanta hasn't had some favorable situations at that receiving core. And we thought Kyle Pitts, at least I thought Kyle Pitts was going to be the savior, at least from an athleticism standpoint out there going and catching passes. And he has been severely underutilized, especially last season. So yeah. we'll see how Atlanta does offensively. We know that defensively they got a little bit better acquiring, acquiring Jesse Bates from Cincinnati and some other pieces that are getting healthy like A.J. Terrell. So they're young, they're up and coming, but without a quarterback, without a pass rush, you are not going to win in the National Football League. So Atlanta is definitely a team to monitor moving forward, which ties us into our next team, which is going to be the Tennessee Titans. So this is a division rival for me. 
a team that has consistently been just kind of beating our ass over the course of the last few years. But there has been a lot of news trending around them the last few weeks with them releasing a lot of key personnel from the last couple of seasons. And that's a couple of offensive linemen. Derrick Henry's been on the trade block. Robert Woods got cut. Bud Dupree got cut. So the Tennessee Titans seem to be in almost what I would consider to be a rebuild in my professional opinion. But I mean, hey, we don't know until obviously draft night. So Kyle, what are your thoughts on what Tennessee needs to improve upon next season? There's a few areas that they need to focus on. Um, the two areas that I'm going to focus on are the quarterback position and the wide receiving core. Kind of similar to what we just talked about with the Falcons. Uh, when it comes to the quarterback position, as of right now, they only have two guys on the depth chart. That's Ryan Tannehill and Malik Willis. Uh, Josh Dobbs is no longer on the depth chart. And I think more than likely, uh, Tennessee's probably going to be in a situation to probably sign probably a backup quarterback or potentially draft one in the draft, which is actually coming pretty soon. It's not that far away. Um, just because when you look at Ryan Tannehill and Malik Willis, both guys underperformed last year, and the record indicates that. They were 7-10. and 10, And look, when it comes to, to Ryan Tannehill, he's been somebody who Kevin and I talked about uh, a couple years ago when the Tennessee Titans had the number one seed. Uh, they had a home field advantage in the AFC. Uh, he was largely responsible for the Titans losing uh, that, I believe is a divisional game against the Bengals. And it was a game where defensively for the Titans, they got nine sacks on Joe Burrow and Ryan Tannehill ended up throwing three interceptions in that game and ended up actually throwing the game losing interception that set up the Bengals for a game winning field goal. And Ryan Tannehill has just been kind of up and down since then. He's had some flashes here and there, but Nothing to the point where I have confidence in his ability to be able to get Tennessee to a point where they could be able to compete at a high level within the AFC. Because you look at the AFC right now, Kev, this AFC is stacked. You got teams like the Chiefs to contend with, the Bills, the Bengals. Those teams are head and shoulders above where the Titans are right now. And the Titans finished at a 7-10 and record. This is not a team that is trending in the right direction. And I think Kev actually was appropriate I think it was an appropriate description with essentially saying that Tennessee's kind of teetering on a rebuild here. So, man, if you have Ryan Tannehill and Malik Willis as your quarterbacks on the depth chart, that's not a situation that instills a lot of confidence moving forward. Just because Malik Willis had some opportunities last year to be able to display his talents, and he fell short in that regard. So, if the Titans are in a situation where they're going to have to draft a quarterback in this draft or look for somebody in free agency, now's the time because both of these guys are shaky at best moving forward. And then the second part that I want to focus on is the wide receiving core. You let go of Robert Woods. You did that to save some cap. And you look at the situation that they have at the wide receiving core right now. You got Traylon Burks. You have Nick Westbrook Ikine. I've always struggled with that name. And then you have Kyle Phillips. I think we can objectively look at this depth chart for the Titans and say, this is not what I would consider a contending wide receiving court to work with. And, you know, obviously when you look at the Titans offense, it's mostly predicated around Derrick Henry. It's really Derrick Henry first and pass second, but they're going to have to make some upgrades in this wide receiving core. And when it comes to what they've done in free agency, they really haven't done anything to instill a lot of confidence in me that they're going to make some overhaul to this wide receiving court. Maybe they do it in the draft. But as of right now, I'm looking at this wide receiving court. I just don't think it's going to be able to contend at a high level 
even in the division. The AFC South is not a strong division. And, you know, you look at teams like Jacksonville. Jacksonville's on the rise right now. Jacksonville, they got that playoff spot. Last game of the year, Titans had a chance to be able to get into the playoffs, and they fell short. Granted, they had Josh Dobbs in at quarterback, and that probably didn't give them the best chance to win. But nonetheless, they were competitive in that game. They just fell a little bit short. But as of right now, I know Kev's going to have a lot to say about the Titans and some areas that he sees that they need to fix. But overall, the Titans are in a downward trend right now, and they got to fix this quick, fast, and in a hurry if they want to be able to compete for the foreseeable future. I mean, I'm just going to piggyback on one piece here, and that's going to be offensive line. The Titans have lost a number of offensive linemen over the course of the last few weeks, starting with Taylor Lewan, a former All-Pro left tackle who is consistently battling injuries over the last couple of years. He gets cut. Then we talk about center Ben Jones. He gets cut. Then we're going to move into uh, Dennis Daly. He declares to become a free agent. Then we go and we talk about, um, I'm sorry, guys, I'm scrolling up their recent transaction history and offensive lineman I can't filter through. Uh, Corey Levin, offensive guard, he gets he declares for free agency. Nate Davis, he becomes a free agent, and so on and so forth. Now, they did sign Andre Dillard from the Philadelphia Eagles. They did go out there and get Daniel Brunskill from the 49ers. But in terms of depth as a whole, just signing two replacement tackles does not fix the issues of all of the linemen in terms of depth that you have lost. That is going to be a focal point because if you still have Derrick Henry come draft night, right? If the, if he ends up not getting traded and you don't have an offensive line, plus you're trying to make a definitive decision on whether or not you want to continue to work with Ryan Tannehill or you want to build up Malik Willis or excuse, Malik Willis, right? Did I just, did I just yeah, blank on yeah, that? Yeah, you're right. I don't know why I just hesitated with that. Um, you have to also have an offensive line to protect them. You have to have an offensive line to make holes for your franchise player in Henry. So that has to be the biggest portion for me because everything starts with the offensive line, as Kyle and I have stated a multitude of times this year. And if Tennessee is going to allow all these people to walk, all these players to declare for free agency, put people on the trading block, not pay attention to massive needs in building the receiving core and the quarterback room, it, it looks like they're going to be right side by side with Houston for being one of the most dysfunctional franchises over the last couple of years because they were at a playoff peak just two seasons ago. Ryan Tannehill revitalized his career. Derrick Henry was competing for MVPs. It, they had so much going for them. Mike Vrabel looked like a genius, and now it's all falling apart at the seams because everybody knows in the AFC South, it's going through Jacksonville. If they can maintain the consistency that they had last season, Trevor Lawrence, Doug Peterson, at the, and now they get Calvin Ridley back? Bro, Jackson was going to run the division for the next five, ten years if 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 these other teams, including the Colts, don't get it together. But Tennessee is not starting off the offseason in the right direction. Yeah, and you know it's kind of crazy. You know, you look at the wide receiving core just a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, AJ Brown, AJ Brown, one of the the best wide receivers in the game, and now you're you're basically relying on Traylon Burks, Nick Westbrook, and Kyle Phillips. That's a major downgrade. And unfortunately for the Titans, I think they're in this position where I don't know how they're going to be able to get out of it unless they make some critical moves in the draft. Because, Kev, I mean, they made the trade at last year's draft with A.J. Brown, sending him to Philly. I wouldn't be surprised to do the same thing with Derrick Henry. Somebody's going to come out of nowhere for Derrick Henry. I feel it in my guts. That's going to be the move. And if that happens, then it's all 
It's full but rebuild. Sure, it's full rebuild. There's there's no at doubt that point, about that. You trade you trade Tannehill, unload that contract, or you or you cut him and and you and you, you go with Willis. Scratch. You start from scratch. Yep. It, it, it's gonna be probably uh, gonna be a dark part for the Titans for the next couple of years if that's the case because they had their opportunities and they just they just fell short and choked. Yeah. But oh well, not my problem. You you got enough to deal with with the Colts, so shit. You ain't lying. Anywho, um, guys, that's going to wrap it up for us. Uh, we've been away for a while. Again, we do apologize for the pause in content. We're, I wish we could come up with something more clever than allergies, but when, I, when, when we tell you, it's like Kyle and I have lived in Florida for about half of our lives, maybe a little bit less than that at this point, and this is probably by far, again, Kyle and I talk every day, this is by far the worst year we've ever had with allergies. Like, there are days where we're perfectly fine, and then there's two days we're down and out. So mm-hmm. we apologize from the bottom of our hearts. We we, we do not want to take time off. But uh, like Kyle said at the top of the episode, we don't want to give you a half-assed episode or an episode that didn't flow or that we were just blabbering about. So we want to make sure that we have key, good content to put out there. We're having a good time, and... You know, our health does kind of come somewhere up there on the totem pole of importance, but we, we got to make sure that we're yeah. good, too. Well, yeah, it's it's not really, I would say, the best uh, experience listening when our nasals are, I mean, our nostrils are clogged and our freaking faces are puffy because the, the light is too bright for our eyes because just our eyes are sensitive because of the allergies. But it is what it is. You know, we just try to mitigate it as best as we can. We try to manage it as best as we can. And. Yeah, this year it's been a little bit more tricky than years past, but you know, Kevin, Kevin and I are going to make the best of it, and hopefully, these allergies subside sooner rather than later, and then, you know, we just get into a situation where we don't even have to think about it. So it's just unfortunate that this time of the year it always happens. So we appreciate you know you guys being patient, and um, we will have more content rolling out more consistently as long as sure. the allergies don't kick our ass in the process. Facts, but um. With that said, you guys, that's pretty much going to wrap it up. Uh, we appreciate you guys tuning in, whether it was watching us on YouTube or listening on the audio platforms. We definitely appreciate that. Um, more than likely, we'll probably just do one episode this week. Uh, if there's something that really pops up, maybe Kevin and I will do a segment uh, to close out the week. But other than that, we'll be back next week uh, with two episodes for you guys. So definitely stay tuned for that. Kev, I've got nothing else to add. Floor is yours to close us on out, bro. All right, everybody, it is Wednesday, so I can't say have a good weekend. But by the time you hear this, it'll be Thursday. So get ready for the weekend. Let's have a good day. Let's have a great rest of the week. And uh, we'll see you guys again, hopefully on Sunday. Take it easy, you guys. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement. Inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music.